Hello and welcome to this week's Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me and on his phone in studio... A very photographic Jason Rosenbaum. I was taking a picture of the clock to put Ah. on Instagram because I am just that lame. We're breaking down the fourth wall here. Now now they see how the sausage is made. And And Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon. We had a lot of stuff happen in the past week, actually. There were a couple of high-profile vetoes. Yes. Uh, taking place. Yeah, and a feistier governor doing uh, it. A very feisty governor. Uh, w- which veto do you guys want to talk about first? Let's go with the tax cut one because I think that's more far-reaching. With all Definitely. Do- the, and the other one I think could be far-reaching too, but I think that this one is a big-ticket item that got vetoed and could present a showdown. So right. go, Chris. Describe what with, we're talking about. With that, Nixon has vetoed the income tax cuts the way he did it was actually, uh, as Joe would put it, feistier than than previously he has been. He criticized it before for saying that it would accidentally cause a $200 million sales tax in- increase. Uh, yesterday in Kansas City, he said, House Bill 253 is an ill-conceived, fiscally irresponsible experiment that would jeopardize funding for vital public services. Right. Now, he had made complaints even before this session was sure. over about the tax cut bills because the earlier version did have a sales tax hike for everybody, and then that got stripped out. Um, But he had kind of signaled his intention to veto this for weeks. But the the snafu, as we should call it, really gave him a, a big window when it was discovered that inadvertently... Uh, according to the, to the backers, the final version eliminated the longstanding exemption for, as we've mentioned before, for prescription drugs so that everybody would have to pay sales tax on prescription drugs. And now you don't. That would raise about $200 million a year for the state. Uh, but Nixon's point is, and, and he said so in his veto thing, that we are cutting taxes for lobbyists and then raising taxes on seniors as one of the uh, – I'm yeah. para- paraphrasing one of his statements in there, but it was that kind of stuff that doesn't uh, play well for any legislator. And I think that it gave the governor the upper hand, which I think is one of the reasons that some of the backers of the tax bill have really been pushing back and trying to find out who to, who to blame for the mess up. And they were claiming Department of Revenue. These emails that came out by the Associated Press last week show that it wasn't them as far as the originator. They didn't catch it when everyone was looking at the final version later, but it originated apparently with the Legislative House staff. Yes, the AP wrote last Friday that a legislative staffer sent a revised version back to the Revenue Department that included the prescription tax error. The Revenue Department official then signed off on that version. We asked Nixon about it on, what was that, Monday, Joe? Monday, yes. It was Monday, and uh, he was... Visibly frustrated. In oh, this. in fact, he interrupted Chris, jumped on. <laughs> he did. I, I, I barely got out, you know, <laughs> one sentence, but he already knew where I was going with it. And, and his response was, the legislature has a responsibility. They shouldn't start pointing fingers. They should put their nose down and look at the bills they're passing. They're the ones that voted on Yeah, them. because wasn't it between the time that this happened and the time that it eventually was sent to the governor, wasn't it like a two- or three-month period? I don't know what exactly it was, but there were literally dozens of legislators on both sides of the aisle, because I didn't hear Democrats pointing this out during debate. They were more talking about the philosophical objections that could have caught this 
um, while the legislature was going on, and nobody did. Well, so yeah, and, and uh, uh, one of the uh, longtime anchors at Missouri Net, Missouri Net, Bob Pretty, yeah, Bob Pretty had a blog post uh, this week, which I'm mentioning. Shout out to Bob, where he he you know he's he's based in Jeff City, and he really sort of hammered at the notion that even if the Department of Revenue had been responsible, which he said the emails show it was not, he said the fact is that. Um, legislators, they're the ones who create the bills, they're the ones that pass the bills, and that they shouldn't be uh, blasting an institution for a governor that they're fighting with all the time anyway. So I mean, that was his point. And, and you had a story go up last Friday where you spoke to House Speaker Tim Jones. Do you want to talk a little bit about right. what he said? Yes. Uh, House Speaker Tim Jones did a statewide tour for four days. And uh, went around and was talking about the session results. He did this something similar right mm-hmm. before the session started. And I got to talk to him at his final uh, event in Eureka, his base. And he contended that the governor was using the prescription drug mess up as, quote, a red herring, unquote, to uh, cover the fact that the governor planned to veto it anyway. It just gave him uh, a stronger reason to do a more palatable reason uh to do so now, Jones came out with a statement right after the governor vetoed this, saying that saying some of the same stuff, but then adding that he thought that the governor really wanted to use this the extra. He was pointing to the fact which the Beacon had I had earlier this week uh, that it looks like the fiscal year, which ends in a few weeks, will end up with at least three hundred million extra dollars that the state had not expected to have. And so that will go into just the, um, uh, in effect, sort of a rainy date. It, it, it reverts into this other fund that uh, Budget Director Linda Lubring says is sort of, it, it's going to take a couple years of that, she said, to bolster it up to where it was in the old days. But the point was, was that Jones was claiming that the governor uh, here at a time when the state's doing better, when there's going to be some extra money, that he's vetoing this, and he's claiming that the governor really wants to use this extra money to uh, make the case for Medicaid expansion, some of the other spending that he wants to do that Republicans don't. But one thing I noticed in that statement that wasn't there is he said nothing about overriding it. And I wanted to kind of talk about why I don't think the bill will be override at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the vote count on the bill, it was like 103 to 51. I actually looked at the no votes. I was was squiggly on that the last time I talked about it. Mm -hmm. Um, When you do the breakdown, it was 100 Republicans and three Democrats who voted yes. And there were six Republicans that did not vote. Yeah. Uh, There was actually seven. But one of them was Jason Smith, who is now a congressman. We'll get to him later. Right. So those six Republicans, if they vote to override it, based on the vote count now, that would be 109, the exact Mm -hmm. number to get a veto overridden. The problem is those three Democrats, Ed Schieffer of Troy, uh, Jeff Rorta of Jefferson County, and Steve Hodges of East Prairie, um, I would say are unlikely to vote to override that. In fact, I can say definitively on this podcast that Ed Schieffer told me that he will not be voting to override it. Jeff Rorta told me he's going to take a hard look at it. I haven't talked to Hodges yet. I've kind of wanted to give him some space after his election. So right then and there, is you, lost, yeah. you, you don't have Schieffer on that. 
And the thought of getting those three Republicans, who I believe are Elaine Gannon of Jefferson County, I think it's Dennis Fowler of Southeast Missouri. I may have gotten his first name wrong. And Kent Hampton, also of Southeast Missouri. The thought that they're going to vote to override it after voting no, after this prescription drug thing came on, yeah. I got to tell you, it just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of logical sense that they would flip unless they are heavily pressured. And even if you have that, those three, you're still like a vote short or voter too short now um, because those people are going to do it. So I just don't see it happening. So let's say that it, it that it doesn't um, pass, it, that it doesn't override a veto. How much of that do you think can be attributed to this $200 million accidental sales tax staff? I think it gives them the edge because um, – in rural Missouri, especially, the average age is over very uh, is very is over fifty. Yeah. So uh, while anybody you know can be on prescription drugs for different mm. things, is yeah. this particularly hits the elderly who um, are more likely to be on regular drugs and also tend to be uh, on tight budgets because uh, of Social Security and other things because they're not working. So the bottom line is, is I think legislators pay a lot of attention to what to the elderly because they also are the most reliable voting block and, in the state. And also, Gannon and Hampton won their elections by very, very narrow margins. In fact, Hampton almost had to go into like a revote because the election was so close. So if they come back and vote to override this veto, you can absolutely expect that Democrats will hammer them not only for reversing their position, but also pointing out that this, this drug aspect to it. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know if, if in the very unlikely event that Schieffer or Rorta vote to override, which I don't think they will. Um, I mean, it's really going to be kind of hard to attack them on that because their Republican opponents probably voted for it, too. Jeannie Riddle, who's probably going to run against Schieffer. Right. And um, Paul Weiland or Wieland, who's going to run against Rorta, they voted for this, too. So I don't really think you can attack them, but you can rest assured that Hampton and Gannon would be just blasted in the re-election bids, I think, if they, they voted to override here. So there's a lot of pressure, a well, lot of pressure. Now, what Jones told me uh, on Friday is that there will be a meeting this summer of uh, the caucus, the Republican caucus in the House, where they'll determine on various bills which ones they'll try to veto, I mean, try to override and which ones they won't. And obviously that's because of the vote count. You know, they figure out yeah. if, if they've got, See, because as Jason has aptly pointed out, if every Republican votes in favor of an override, they can do it, but they got to have full attendance, especially since now Jason Smith is out and the governor may not call an election till after the veto check. I'd say it's highly, uh, highly unlikely. Yeah, it yeah, could be that, I mean, that special election could be in like October or November or whatever, and which is after the veto session. Yeah. So... Um, the meeting apparently is going to be in August is what Jones said. So I think that if it looks like they don't have the votes, that I bet they don't try. And then what they'll do instead, because he did say, and I have that in the story, that um, he'll come back next session with another mm-hmm. tax cut bill. And uh, and, th- and that will also be an election year yeah. uh, for the legislators. So um, I think that could be a showdown over this so there may be yet another push for some sort of tax break next year that's what i'm guessing is going to happen is that they're going to try to redo it and make sure they don't have any of these mess ups 
Well, let's let's talk very briefly about the other bill that Nixon vetoed this week. The foreign law bill. Because yes, if we call the it the courts. Sharia law bill, you know, the sponsor pushes back against that Correct. a little bit. Correct. Detractors as, refer it to as the as, as Joe talked with the sponsor yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. So. Senator Brian Nieves, who um, is one of the more colorful members of the um, state Senate, and Brian had uh, – was the chief sponsor of this bill, which basically says, and it actually uses this word, it says that uh, Missouri will not, cannot enforce any foreign laws that are deemed, quote, repugnant, as is in the bill, yeah. to the state or the federal constitution. Now, some on both sides claim that this is actually aimed in part at Sharia law. Uh, Nieves told me in an interview that, no, it's not directed just at Sharia law. It's directed at any law. Any foreign law that uh, doesn't square with the Constitution, the state or the federal. Well, what's pointed out is that particularly in the realm of overseas adoptions, they're having to deal with the laws in that country in order to adopt the child and get them over here. And then a a number of businesses in the state say, well, that they're dealing with foreign laws in um, uh, their business, you know, if, if they're trying to sell something or buy something, but mainly in Missouri, it's like the exports that they're dealing with foreign laws. And uh, so the some of the businesses are not for this, although for whatever reason, they haven't really said much publicly about it. But anyway, Nixon had um veto ceremony here on Monday. Chris was there too. Yes. And uh, the governor made a point of, he claimed that this bill was displayed, um, uh, was an example of demagoguery. Pointless demagoguery <laughs> yes. is what he, is yeah. what he said. Yeah. And which is, he, he didn't use any names, no. but you're, well. get, you're guessing what he was, who he was aiming at. But the governor said that how this would mess things up and that this made no sense. And again, this is another case where, while he might have vetoed it and there might have been an effort to try to override or whatever, the fact that it turns out that the adoption community is up in arms over this and was saying how this could endanger all these international adoptions of children. And right now they're kind of under pressure anyway because there are some uh, foreign countries like Russia that have temporarily sort of closed off. They're, they're not allowing that many new adoptions for various for reasons. For separate reasons, yeah. But the point being if people who are trying to get an adoption, they're under even more stress as far as trying to get overseas adoptions. So anything that looks like it could be threatening, it really has got that community whipped up. So, again, here's an issue, a smaller issue, that uh, then becomes the rallying point that the governor uses when he vetoes it, and, ha- and he's flanked by all of these groups. Now, Nieva says that, again, he may try to bring it up next year with a new bill, and he'll make a specific reference that it has nothing to do with international adoptions. Well, let's move it along here to the 8th Congressional District. There was actually an election this week, yes. although you might have missed it. You might have missed it. I think I, I was I commented to my wife about this after I saw something <laughs> on KSDK. They devoted, I think, 10 seconds to announcing his win. And I probably, Joe and I probably were, wrote thousands of thousands <laughs> of words on this race. Good point. Um, we talked about this a little last week, kind of gauging expectations. And Smith beat Hodges. 
Yes. I believe 67. Yeah. Republican Jason Smith and Democrat Steve Hodges. 67 right. and Hodges didn't break 30 percent. So it was 27 a, uh, was yes. what Hodges got. Hodges only won a couple of counties in the boot heel. And Smith won Jefferson County pretty decisively. He won all the population centers by gigantic margins. And it was a pretty decisive victory. I don't want to say it's a stunning victory because no. I think most people really. thought that he was going to win be based off a lot of factors, not to denigrate Hodges, who I think was an you know, a pretty good candidate for that district, but the but it's such a Republican leaning district and there are so many Republican population centers that it's I don't it's just very difficult for a Democrat to compete there. So it didn't necessarily surprise me, but did it surprise you at it, all, Joe? The, the margin did. I have to give you credit, Jason, because uh, uh, I, I can say this now. You had privately been saying for a while that you thought the margin was going to be pretty substantial for Smith. And I was arguing that, well, Smith was clearly the favorite. I thought it might be a little closer based mm-hmm. on some issues and debate debate performance and that sort of thing. Um, and But Jason turned out to be accurate I mean, it for was once. it was a blowout <laughs> yeah. for Smith. Now, some people have pointed out. Okay, first, the the turnout was less than thirteen percent. It was extremely low. Extremely low. Yeah. I did some figuring uh, for the story on Tuesday night that it was only one fifth of the turnout that they had in November. So there was a whole lot of people who stayed home. So I've had some Republicans privately tell me that they contend that this still won't discourage potential primary rivals from challenging Smith in August of 2014. However, the fact that he got sworn in right away, he flew in the next Wednesday to uh, Washington, D.C., got sworn in right away, even though the certification will probably be another week or more, and uh, but he... Basically, the Secretary of State's office didn't take a position on the early swearing in. They just said that there won't be a recount because the margin was so great. And so uh, Congressman Lacey Clay, who is the dean of the delegation now, said he had no objection if they wanted to swear him in early. But my point being that all the Republicans were there, and you wonder if that wasn't also trying to show a sign of unity. I think Emmanuel Cleaver was also there. Okay. From what I, I, I watched that on C-SPAN, and I think that all the House people and Roy Blunt was there. I don't think McCaskill was there from what I saw. Um, The reason why I was privately saying to people beyond, because I sometimes get these prediction percentage is completely <laughs> wrong. And I've definitely been wrong before in predicting races privately. But the the thing that really struck me about this race and why I did not think it was going to be that close was the DCCC put no effort into no. this race. And Joe and I don't want to say I've been covering it for a long time, but I have covered several competitive congressional yes. races, especially one in the ninth District of, of what was the ninth District of Missouri. And when the DCCC got involved in that race, that race was a 50-47 race. I don't know if the, the R- NRCC got involved in the Ed Martin-Russ Carnahan race, but I know he had national groups involved in that, and that race was very close. If these third-party groups don't put any effort into it, it's kind of a sign that the person who's favorited to win is going to win unless they completely screw up. And although Jason Smith, I guess, mistakenly said, apparently, I don't, I didn't hear it for sure, that, I no, did. that no rice was grown in the 8th District or whatever, 
I mean, that wasn't a mistake right. that was going to really change enough to really do anything. So do I think that there'll be a primary next year? Like, will he... I think there will be a primary. I think that there will be somebody who challenges him just because in 2012, Joanne Emerson was challenged by somebody, Bob Parker. And I think that someone like him will probably run. The big question is if someone like Lieutenant Governor Kinder runs, uh, you know, former state senator Jason Kral, maybe some of the people that didn't get involved this time, like Kevin Engler of Farmington, maybe he decides to do it, although he would have to forego his House seat. Um, I mean, that. Those are completely hypothetical names. We haven't heard anything definitive from those people, but I wouldn't be that surprised if there was a conventional primary. But if Smith really works hard these next year and a half, not only doing his job as a congressman and getting out to the the 8th District, which is the size of Belgium, as you mentioned in your story, (laughs) but also just laying the organizational and fundraising groundwork, Maybe it will be a pretty minor primary. It's really going to be up to him to to decide his his future fate, I think. Well, this just goes to show that uh, some events, uh, in this case, it was the uh, insider selection, which was the the process last winter of picking the Republican and Democratic nominee, how that can have such far-reaching results, because there was over a dozen Republicans, including Kinder, um, who were really— trying to get that nomination. Kinder had far more name recognition. I think, um, you know, he's in his third term as lieutenant governor. And there are some who say that, since he's from Cape Girardeau, that that uh, getting elected to Congress from um, southeast Missouri was an important aim of his. Didn't happen. The insiders went with Smith, who was like one of the least well-known. But as Jason has pointed out, uh, Smith is a, a young number two guy in the House, um, knows how to do the political ropes, uh, smart guy, lawyer. So now he's in Congress. Uh, it's happened before. We've had a state House member. Just look at Luke DeMeyer. Luke DeMeyer, uh, Vicki Hartzler was in the state House. I mean, Sam Graves was in the state Senate, and so were Lacey Clay. But they oh. had House experience. Correct. Um, Yes, it is. It, there is precedent for people going from the state house to Congress. So I think that's what people will be watching, and I'm sure Smith is aware of that too. That there's going to be a lot of fellow Republicans here back home uh, watching him, seeing if he's displaying enough strength or enough savvy. Um, I, I, from what his comments have been, it sounds like he immediately is trying to get uh, tied in close to some of the Tea Party groups. And others to try to uh, forge a pretty strong um, yeah, because, conservative base. Because Cape Girardeau typically tends to support candidates from Cape Girardeau. Yes. You saw that in that state Senate race between Wayne Wallingford and Ellen Brandom last year. And Kinder and Crowell are both from Cape They're Girardeau. Both from Cape Girardeau. So if if somebody who was in elected office and who's a big name decides to get in from Cape I think it's a it's a significant challenge, but it's not an insurmountable one because the power of incumbency, even a year and a half of incumbency, right. is is makes a difference. And I, I've you've you just said it a few seconds ago, but Smith is definitely a lot of ability, and I think that pretty much everybody said he worked really really hard, not only to get this nomination, but you know to to win this election and. I don't want to count him out by any means. Um, in fact, I would say that he has 
some basic frameworks to be the favorite no matter who runs against them. Well, and I think the Swifts swearing in with all the Republicans being there, as I mentioned before, I think that was a signal, an attempted signal at part at unity, not just in Washington, but it may be sending a signal back to Missouri as well as far as the party apparatus. I mean, the fact that Blunt and everybody was there. And I think Blunt in, in, in particular is a very influential behind-the-scenes presence in Missouri politics, particularly with Bond now retired. And um, I, the fact that Blunt was there for the swearing-in and all that, I think that says something. Well, before we sign it off here, Jason, do you want to give a quick preview of what's going on this weekend? I guess yes, jo- go ahead. Well, I or- guess both of us will tag team this okay. up. Um, Deval Patrick will be in town, the governor of Massachusetts, to headline Jefferson Jackson Days, which is in St. Louis. It's the Democrat, state Democrats' biggest fundraising dinner of the year. And um, I will be there. I will cause lots of trouble and disrupt <laughs> things. Um, no, not Please don't take that literally. (laughs) I'm going to be very well behaved. Youthful exuberance. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think that a lot of these events where it involves a lot of speeches, it it involves kind of a lot of mingling, but they're kind of just staples in Missouri politics that are fun to go to and cover as a reporter. So I'm I'm hoping that we get some good stuff out of it. Well, the key thing there will be, as far as my opinion, and normally I would go, I have a a personal event that night, but... I think that people will be watching closely the speeches by the governor and by McCaskill. This will be actually the first major public event this year where both of them have been there. Usually both of them are at Democrat Days in Hannibal, but this year the governor was there, but McCaskill didn't go. So the Jefferson-Jackson dinner, you basically you have a series of speeches and people, I think, are going to be paying attention to how the governor and McCaskill, what their messages are, um, how much they intermingle, because these are basically two powerful forces within the state Democratic Party. And there's lots of talk right now if uh, allegations of potential jockeying behind the scenes over influencing who gets selected as the next uh, state party chairman to replace um, Mike Sanders, who's the county executive for Jackson County, but who plans on stepping down at some point because he's got a reelection next year. He does, and he's <laughs> he's considering running for statewide office in 16, likely for attorney general. So. Co- correct, and that could be interesting because Tim Jones has also told me, for the record, that he's looking at attorney general in particular. Everybody wants to be attorney general. Right. Except but, me. I'm not an attorney, so I don't think that would work. But continue. But Jefferson-Jackson Dinner also will feature uh, – I mean, the assumption is, from what I'm hearing, is that all the other Democratic statewides will be there. It would be Cander, Zweifel, and Coster. Yes. And the expectation is that Coster, uh, who is openly running for governor in 2016, and will be making some remarks there. And so – it often is a series of speeches. It's, as I said, it's the biggest fundraising dinner that the state party has, and it's always in St. Louis. So uh, it's quite and, the show. And the Democrats need a Senate candidate in 16, so maybe yeah. Zweifel can fit the bill, or if Nixon is wants to run for the Senate a third time, maybe, maybe he'll be feisty too. So. But as I mentioned before, it's blunt. Would be, it, it, it would be challenging Roy Blunt. And I think that uh, some Dem- the Democrats are paying. They are aware of 
have the influence that Blunt has and um, the power structure that he's already developed. So I think that a lot of Democrats are thinking – I think they're going to have problems coming up with a first-tier yeah. candidate unless Blunt stumbles. Well, that should just about do it for the show. We have a, we do have one exciting announcement. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes I forgot. Um we are going to be kind of switching up the format of Politically Speaking in the coming weeks, and we're going to start having guests on the show. They're going to mainly be elected officials, but we're going to try to get elected officials that, you know, you may not know a lot about, who may not be, you know, household names to everybody. But who are influential. But who are influential, and we want to give them the time and the space to talk about things that they're doing and also opine on the week's <laughs> events. So we're starting off next week, uh, Senator Eric Schmidt of Glendale, who is maybe a household name to some people in St. Louis, but he has agreed to come on the show. He's a Republican. And um, and uh, we will have other – we are hopefully to have a, a slew of guests over the next few weeks and months. We have a lot to talk about on this show. I think we're hitting the 32-minute mark on this. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that the next few months may not have as much political news in the past. So I do want to try to use this podcast. And I'm sure I'm not just speaking for myself, but also Chris and Joe, for a chance to bring in some influential policymakers and thinkers onto this podcast, give them kind of a, a more roomier platform to talk about things. And We'll see what happens. If it's a complete failure, you can blame me. <laughs> well, you heard it. And, and, he gave his, and he gave his email previously, so you can, you can email him all of your complaints. Uh, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at... Jay Rosenbaum. And you can follow Joe on Twitter at... At jmanis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And we'll be back next week with our new guest. Until then, so long. So long. Guests.